Before we begin today, you may have noticed that this week's episode and last week's episode are both a little longer than most. Emphasis on the little. And part of the reason is because I am taking next week off. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you may recall that every year, usually in early October, I go out west, link up with my dad, and he and I hang out with several of our uncles, brothers, and cousins for a few days. I look forward to this reunion every year. I might be even more excited than usual this year because we are heading to Moab, Utah, and I have been wanting to check Arches National Park off my bucket list for a while now, and will even get to hit up Canyonlands National Park while I am at it. So I figured that I would give you a few extra minutes of the space race before going behind the dark side of the moon and giving you nothing but radio silence for a week. And now that that announcement is out of the way, welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 63, From the Earth to the Moon, The Apollo Program, Part 8. I am far from certain that we will be able to fly this mission as planned. I think we will escape with our skins, or at least I will escape with mine. Michael Collins, Apollo 11 Command Module Pilot The morning of the scheduled Apollo 11 launch, Wednesday, July 16, 1969, started like every other planned launch date. The assigned astronauts rise early for a quick shower and shave before receiving one final medical check. They all passed, and the backup crew was dismissed to help with pre-flight preparations. Next was the traditional breakfast. Steak, eggs, toast, juice, and coffee with Chief of Astronauts Deke Slayton. Then it was back to their rooms to brush their teeth and pack their belongings. For this flight, each astronaut was permitted a half pound, about 225 grams, of personal items in a small bag called a personal preference kit. In this bag, the astronauts would carry mementos for family, friends, and colleagues, like coins, medallions, miniature flags, jewelry, and anything else that would fit to the moon. Deciding what to take was surprisingly time-consuming. Armstrong requested and received permission to take two small pieces of the original 1903 Wright Flyer. Today, those pieces are on display, one at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and the other at the Kitty Hawk, North Carolina Historic Site. 
A few other unique-to-this-mission items were already on the spacecraft. There was a stainless steel plaque that would be left on the moon, bolted to one of the lunar module's landing legs. The plaque showed the two hemispheres of the Earth and was inscribed with, Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came for all mankind. Below the inscription were the signatures and names of the three crewmen and beneath that of President Nixon. When the lunar module lifted off, leaving the four-legged descent stage, the plaque would remain on the moon, unchanged in the vacuum of space for all eternity. Once their bags were packed, the men headed up the stairs to the suit room and donned their spacesuits, after which each astronaut carefully snapped his bubble helmet down onto the neck ring and locked it in place. Then he plugged into a portable oxygen ventilator that he carried like a briefcase. This purged his body of nitrogen, which prevented the bends, a painful condition when nitrogen bubbles accumulate in the bloodstream that us non-astronaut types really only have to worry about when surfacing incorrectly after scuba diving. If nitrogen was present, the bends could occur in astronauts when cabin pressure was reduced shortly after liftoff. The Omega Speedmaster watches on each man's wrist was set to Houston time. Unable to hear anything but their ventilator fans, the astronauts passed a throng of reporters, boarded the transfer van, and rode the eight miles to the launch pad. The sun was about to rise as they arrived at Pad 39 Alpha. Sheets of frozen ice slid off the Saturn V rocket where air had condensed and frozen against the super-cold fuel tanks. After riding the elevator up to their spacecraft, the crew met launch pad Führer Gunter Vent, who I mentioned in episode 58 as a former McDonnell engineer who had been replaced when North American won the Apollo contract, but was brought back to manage launch pad operations after the Apollo 1 fire. The astronauts continued an old tradition of exchanging gag gifts with Vent as a way to ease some of the mounting tension. Vent presented the crew with a large key to the moon made out of styrofoam and aluminum foil. From his watch band, Armstrong pulled out a card that read, Space Taxi, good between any two planets, and gave it to Vent. Armstrong then entered the capsule. Collins, who had been carrying a brown paper bag, pulled out a wooden plaque with Vent's name on it and the inscription, Trophy Trout. To the plaque was nailed a frozen, but rapidly thawing, trout all of seven inches long. Vent was an avid angler and Collins had been out on the water with him many times. Then Collins boarded the capsule. Now it was Aldrin's turn. The gifts were usually light-hearted, but Aldrin gave Vent, a fellow Presbyterian, a copy of Good News for Modern Man, a condensed version of the Bible. 
Then Aldrin climbed into the middle seat between his two crewmates, and the technicians began the elaborate process of buckling them in and connecting them to the ship's life support system. When they finished, Vent tapped Aldrin on the shoulder and wished the crew luck, and the hatch was closed and locked. A few minutes before 8 a.m., the launch pad Fuhrer and his team descended to the ground, leaving the crew alone atop the 36-foot, 11-meter rocket with its 6 million pounds or 2.7 million kilograms of fuel. It was about this time that Collins noted that the abort handle at Armstrong's left side was dangerously close to a large pocket on Armstrong's suit. Just one counterclockwise twist would fire the three rockets of the escape tower above them and jerk the command module up and away from the rocket below. A slight movement of his left leg could snag the handle, so Collins pointed it out to Armstrong, who quickly pulled the pocket as far to the right as he could. As one might expect, the Apollo 11 mission fascinated the entire world. People from every state in the Union and many countries outside of it had begun to descend on Florida a week before the launch. And by the morning of July 16th, there were almost a million of them. There were no motel rooms available within a 50-mile or 80-kilometer radius of Cape Kennedy, so some motels allowed extra guests to sleep in the lobby or on deck chairs around the pool. The rest of the visitors congregated along U.S. Highway 1 and the beaches that ran parallel to it, setting up camp in their tents, crude shelters, vans, trailers, and cars. Every public park in the area was converted into a campground. There seemed to be a lot more kids around than usual for a launch, likely because parents wanted their children to witness history in the making. Three miles or five kilometers from the launch site, NASA set up a special VIP viewing area for invited guests, which included 19 governors, 40 mayors, 69 foreign ambassadors, 33 senators, 200 congressional representatives, untold numbers of senior NASA employees and Apollo contractors, and plenty of other dignitaries and celebrities, including former President Johnson, who had left office about five months earlier, and his wife, Lady Bird. Former NASA Administrator Jim Webb was also there, ready to witness his first rocket launch. Charles Lindbergh, who had inspired so many of the astronauts and engineers, was there, sitting next to an old friend named Claude Ryan. In 1927, Ryan's small aviation company had built a plane to Lindbergh's specifications for a transatlantic flight the young pilot had planned. The Spirit of St. Louis had flown from New York to Paris in 33 and a half hours. Fifty years later, Ryan's firm had built the landing radar for Apollo 11's lunar module. The press contingent for the launch included 3,493 American journalists 
and 812 foreign reporters from 55 countries. 3,000 boats of varying sizes floated in the Banana River to the east of the launch site and the Indian River to the west. On one of them, a motor cruiser owned by North American Aviation that was moored three miles from the launch site, Jan Armstrong would watch the launch with her boys, Rick 12 and Mark 6. The Aldrin and Collins families had elected to remain in Houston to avoid the mad crush at the Cape. About 175 miles or 280 kilometers off the coast were uninvited guests with a different agenda. While the vessels the Soviets usually used to monitor launches from Cape Kennedy were fishing trawlers bristling with radar and antennas, this time they'd sent a flotilla that included a guided missile cruiser, two destroyers, two submarines, and a subtender all of them spread out over a wide area, their heavy instruments a sure sign they were ready to track Apollo 11 from liftoff to orbit. The Soviets had all but conceded the moon to the Americans, but they did have one more surprise up their sleeves. On Sunday, July 13th, three days before the Apollo 11 liftoff, the USSR launched another of its Luna probes towards the moon. In his book Shoot for the Moon, James Donovan notes, With characteristic reticence, TASS, the Soviet news agency, noted only that Luna 15's mission was to conduct experiments around the moon and near it. The probe was widely seen as a final desperate attempt to upstage the Americans, Possibly, the Soviets meant to land, scoop up some soil, and return to Earth, thus achieving a couple more lunar firsts. Others postulated a more sinister purpose. Maybe the Soviets would try to observe Apollo 11, or interfere with it, or even shoot it down. By the morning of the Apollo launch, the three-ton Luna probe was nearing the moon, and Chris Kraft was incensed. The possibility of a collision with Apollo 11 was remote, but Kraft was convinced that the Soviets had more than once deliberately operated their communications at or near American radio frequencies during missions, which disrupted Mission Control's ability to speak with the astronauts. He mentioned the Russian probe during a press conference to put some pressure on them, but that hadn't seemed to do any good. Kraft couldn't exactly ask the Soviets for the mission trajectory and communication details, but he knew someone who could. Frank Borman and his family had just returned from a nine-day visit to the USSR, where he'd been welcomed warmly met some cosmonauts and scientists, and drunk many vodka toasts. It was the first time an American astronaut had been allowed in the Soviet Union. Kraft called Borman and explained the situation. Borman put in a call to Dr. Mitislav Keldish, president of the August Soviet Academy of Sciences. The two had hit it off and had discussed cooperation between their space programs. 
he'd left Keldish a message asking for the orbital parameters of Luna 15 and looking for reassurance that it wouldn't interfere with Apollo 11. He hadn't heard back by the day of the launch, but maybe the Russian would get in touch soon. Keldish seemed like an intelligent and reasonable man. The morning was already sweltering with a bright sun and the temperature nearing 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius. The countdown went smoothly save for a couple of minor problems that were fixed without causing a delay. At T-9 seconds, the five massive F-1 engines ignited and at zero as they all reached their full thrust of 7.6 million pounds, the launch tower's swing arm pulled back, and hundreds of thousands of spectators watched, transfixed, as the six and a half million pound spacecraft began to rise, sluggishly at first, its thrust to weight ratio so close that it appeared to ascend in slow motion until it finally cleared the launch tower, sheets of ice breaking off into thousands of shards. At 9.32 a.m., exactly on schedule, Apollo 11 blasted off toward the moon with three men in a small nose cone atop the largest rocket ever sent into space. The sound took 14 seconds to reach the closest observers three miles away, and when it did, the roar was deafening. The ground shook as Apollo 11 continued to soar upward on a long pillar of fire and then arc over the Atlantic to begin its 500,000 mile, 800,000 kilometer round trip journey. Werner von Braun stood in firing room one in the launch control center. While the last 20 seconds of the countdown ticked away, Von Braun, who had grown devoutly religious since his immigration to the United States, put down his binoculars and stared out the large, blast-proof windows, then bowed his head and began to recite the Lord's Prayer to himself. As the rocket climbed, the 400-man countdown team started cheering, and Von Braun lifted his head and joined them. It was surprisingly quiet in the command module. The F-1s were a distant rumble, not unlike a commercial airliner's engines at takeoff. The spacecraft shook as it lifted off, and the astronauts were jostled against their straps as the four outer engines swiveled back and forth, adjusting to stay balanced and straight. If the rockets came into contact with the launch tower, it would mean catastrophe. The men felt only 1.25 Gs, slightly more than normal but far less than they had endured in training. The force steadily increased as the rocket picked up speed and 2 minutes and 40 seconds into flight, at the end of the first stage burn, the men felt 4 times their normal weight. When the rocket was 45 miles or 72 kilometers up, the astronauts were jerked forward as the spent first stage fell away into the sea. The five smaller J-2 engines of the second stage took over and the ride smoothed out. 
a few seconds later at 60 miles or nearly 100 kilometers altitude, the launch escape tower was jettisoned, and at 110 miles or 180 kilometers, the single J2 of the third stage ignited, this one causing a rougher, shakier ride as the second stage was released. The ride to orbit had taken 12 minutes. At least 14 danger points would occur during their flight. NASA called them go-no-go decision points. Those critical events that involved complex mechanisms and split-second timing that had to transpire flawlessly for a successful mission. At every point, the flight director would ask each controller whether the system he monitored was functioning properly and ready to go. The launch had been the first danger point. Every rocket launch was dangerous, considering the massive amounts of fuel involved. The next point, which would occur during the crew's second orbit of the Earth, was called translunar injection. Restarting the J-2 engine for a 5 minute and 47 second burn would, if perfectly timed, increase the spacecraft's speed to 24,258 miles, about 39,000 kilometers per hour, fast enough to pull it out of orbit and propel it toward the moon, or rather the specific point where the moon would be when Apollo 11 reached it in three days. And starting the J-2 was risky given the nature of its fuels, liquid oxygen at negative 297 degrees Fahrenheit and liquid hydrogen at negative 423 degrees had to be handled extremely carefully. That would be negative 183 and negative 253 degrees Celsius respectively. But Collins had practiced the burn many times. Midway through the second orbit, after checking out their spacecraft to make sure all systems were normal, the crew donned their helmets and gloves again, in case the translunar injection, or TLI, went badly, then waited for word from mission control. It finally came as they passed over Australia. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are go for TLI. The burn went off without a hitch. The cabin shook and the thrust pushed the astronauts back in their seats at 1G. Then the engine shut down automatically and they were on their way to the moon. Von Braun's rocket had performed flawlessly once again. Hey Houston, Armstrong said after shutdown. That Saturn gave us a magnificent ride. After their course was set, the crew changed out of their bulky spacesuits into two-piece nylon jumpsuits, a difficult chore in zero gravity. They took turns. As one man bounced around the cabin, his shipmates helped him. The suits were folded, bagged, and stowed under the center couch. No one had shown any signs of space sickness or any other illness, and no major problems had cropped up. Everything appeared ship-shape. The men relaxed, 
took care of a few chores, and joked around with Jim Lovell back at Mission Control, all before it was time for dinner. The food, packets rehydrated with a hot water gun and eaten with a spoon, was, by their own telling, good. Their first meal of chicken salad, shrimp cocktail, and applesauce was a major improvement over the tubes they'd squirted into their mouths on Gemini flights. Each man had meals color-coordinated for him and planned out for every day. And there was a well-stocked snack pantry they could partake of. And since the sun was always on them, there was no sunrise or sunset so they operated on the time their watches were set to, Houston time, as I mentioned earlier, in the U.S. Central Daylight Time Zone. At 10.30 p.m. CDT, 14 hours after liftoff, they turned the radio down, fastened covers over the windows, and went to sleep. They soon settled into a routine that began each day with breakfast, followed by any flight plan updates from Mission Control and news from Earth, including baseball scores and the latest on Luna 15, which was now in lunar orbit. The three Project Gemini veterans enjoyed the spaciousness of the Apollo capsule, though here the term is relative. While the capsule was roomier than those of Mercury and Gemini, it still wasn't much bigger than the inside of a station wagon, although the lack of gravity did allow the crew to use the space above them as well. This meant that the short connecting tunnel between the command and lunar modules could serve as a space for one person to relax in. Below their seats in the equipment bay was room for one person to fully stand up in. Two could stand there if the center seat was folded up. There was room for two astronauts to stretch out floating weightless in zipped-up sleeping bags slung under the left and right seats. The third astronaut slept above them, loosely buckled in to keep from floating away. Though there was no true day or night, their bodies' circadian rhythms kept them on the same sleep-wake cycle they had always known. With the shades pulled down over the windows and the interior lights dimmed, only the soft whirling of ventilators interrupted the unearthly quiet of cislunar space that lay just a few inches outside the gray alloy walls of their spaceship. The gravitational pull of the Earth extends almost halfway to the moon, so their escape velocity of nearly 25,000 miles per hour gradually slowed down to a tenth of that speed but with no visible features, no trees or buildings or even asteroids whizzing by, they had no real sense of movement aside from their gauges and the slowly shrinking Earth. Besides sleeping, daily chores, and the near-constant chasing after floating items of all size, from pens and sunglasses to crumbs and cameras, all of which had to be caught and securely stowed, the astronauts didn't have much to do. The previous mission included a long list of experiments for the translunar portion of the flight. This one didn't. Daily telecasts had been planned, but when the cameras were turned off, 
These three amiable strangers, though in high spirits, didn't talk a lot amongst themselves. I did read something about this time that made me laugh out loud and feel a heretofore unfelt kinship with Neil Armstrong. To pass some time, he briefly ran in place with his hands above his head holding on to the bulkhead, something Collins had done a few times. This came as a mild shock to anyone aware of Armstrong's avoidance of exercise policy. Finally, an astronaut I can connect with. On the evening of the second day of the mission, Frank Borman got a phone call from Russia. It was Keldish's assistant saying that his boss had received the message. A short time later, Borman received a cablegram from his Russian friend with the precise trajectory of Luna 15's orbit and the assurance that it would not intersect with Apollo 11's. For the first time, the Soviets had revealed mission details to their Cold War rivals while the mission was still in progress. There was no mention of the probe's purpose or its radio frequency, but Borman and Kraft took it on good faith that there would be no radio interference. The next morning, the two held a press conference to announce the news. That information was relayed to Apollo 11, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief. At 11.12 p.m. on Friday, July 18th, Apollo 11 entered the moon's gravitational field, and the craft began picking up speed again. When they woke up the next morning, they were only 10,000 miles or 16,000 kilometers from their destination. While they ate breakfast, they entered the moon's shadow. When they first launched, the moon had appeared as a distant, flat-looking, grayish-white orb the size of an extended thumb. Now it was massive, darker, and fully three-dimensional an object that filled their window and brightly reflected the Earthshine, four times as bright as moonshine, from their home planet behind them. The light lent a bluish tint to the moon's features, adding shadows to its craters and mountains. It's a view worth the price of the trip, Armstrong said. They could also see stars again. The dazzling sunlight had prevented that for days. The 73-hour voyage had been uneventful, but now, as they neared the moon, another danger point approached. Lunar orbit insertion. They had to turn their ship around and apply a braking burn that would slow their speed from 5,225 miles per hour to 3,248, going from 8,400 kilometers per hour to 5,230 allowing the craft to be captured by the moon's gravity and dropped down into an elliptical orbit. If they didn't get it right, Apollo 11 would swing around the moon in a huge arc and then head back toward the Earth in a free return trajectory, or it would be carried the other way toward the sun. If the burn was too long, by just a few seconds, their reduced speed would send them crashing into the lunar surface. The burn would be handled by the onboard Apollo guidance computer, but that doesn't mean it was automated. 
This is an old-timey computer, so the astronauts, after checking their math several times, had to enter the numbers and commands into the computer manually. First a burn of 6 minutes and 3 seconds, followed by a second burn of 8 minutes after they disappeared behind the far side of the moon and would be unable to communicate with mission control if there was a problem. One wrong digit could mean a catastrophic change to their trajectory, but the men and the computer, with a whopping 72 kilobytes of memory, massive for the time but absolutely laughable today, were up to the task. When they came out from behind the moon, they were right where they were meant to be. For the first time in days, they finally experienced a sense of movement as they made a complete circle of the moon every two hours. They argued over the color of the lunar surface, but in the end, concluded it was various shades of gray, with some brown here and there depending on the angle of the light. The moon's cold, stark visage contrasted with the vibrant blues and greens of the Earth they had left three days earlier. Shortly after entering lunar orbit, the crew began another live television broadcast. For those they had done while in transit, they had focused on showing people the interior of the command module and the lunar lander. This time, they focused the camera on the moon, talked through the lunar module's planned flight path for the next day, and pointed out landmarks along the way. Then they got their first view of their landing site, the Sea of Tranquility, they swiveled the camera to keep it in focus as they ended the broadcast. And as the moon sinks slowly in the west, Colin said, Apollo 11 bids good day to you. About an hour later, they made a second burn on the far side of the moon, this one only 17 seconds, to drop Apollo 11 down to a slightly lower and almost perfectly circular orbit. Two more danger points had passed, for a total of six so far. There were several more to come, but not before the crew prepped the lunar module for tomorrow's landing attempt and went over Armstrong and Aldrin's EVA suits one more time. It was nearly midnight as the men settled in for bed, but Collins felt the need to say something. I thought today went pretty well, he said. If tomorrow and the next day are like today, we'll be safe. A half hour later, as their spacecraft continued to circle the lifeless moon 60 miles, nearly 100 kilometers below, they were asleep. The wake-up call came the next morning at 6 a.m. Apollo 11. Apollo 11. Good morning from Houston. Collins, who had slept with the headset on so the others could get a good night's sleep, took a minute to wake up and respond, Good morning, Houston. You guys wake up early. A few minutes later, the capsule slid into the dark side for the ninth time since entering lunar orbit. None of the astronauts had slept long, six hours at most. Aldrin had tossed and turned, but the other two had slept soundly. 
While cut off from contact with mission control, the crew ate breakfast. And when comms were re-established, they got their daily news update, and then it was time to get down to business. When Chris Craft walked into mission control that morning, after the night shift had roused the astronauts, he had never seen it so tense or so crowded. Most of NASA's top brass was on the floor, including Gene Krantz, Bob Gilruth, and General Sam Phillips. The viewing gallery above the floor well exceeded its capacity of 74 on this historic occasion. Those looking down on mission control included Werner von Braun and the first American in orbit, John Glenn. Hey, Colonel Glenn, we haven't seen you since episode 49. How you been? He says he's doing well. In the command module, the three astronauts suited up. Armstrong and Aldrin in their liquid-cooled undergarments that would keep their temperature down on the hot lunar surface, Collins in his own suit, and then attended to various housekeeping chores. After that, Aldrin pulled himself through the tunnel and did more systems checks to Eagle, the landing module, while Armstrong, with Collins' help, struggled into his EVA suit in the navigation bay. Then Aldrin and Armstrong switched places, and Aldrin put on his suit. It took each man a half hour to fully suit up with their helmets and gloves locked into place, though their suits were only half pressurized for now, so they weren't as stiff as usual. At 9.30 a.m., Armstrong and Aldrin were sealed in Eagle. A half hour later, Eagle and Columbia were given the go to unlock, just before they got to the far side of the moon again. When they came out the other side, Mission Control was now tracking two dots. The undocking was successful. Sorry to leave you hanging here for two weeks, but this is where I'm going to have to pause today. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.